And one of my favorite movies, uh, especially this time of year, is White Christmas with Bing Crosby and Danny Kaye. It's a, if you've ever seen it, it's a musical comedy. But the beginning scene of the movie is actually pretty powerful. The movie opens on a division of the army stationed in Europe during World War II. Uh, they're there for battle, and they're really in high-risk territory. There's a lot going on around them that is of concern, and yet it's Christmas Eve. And here on Christmas Eve, Bing Crosby and Danny Kaye decide to put together a little kind of ragtime show for the troops to help lift their spirits. And they're singing and dancing, and everybody's clapping and laughing. But then there's this moment where Bing Crosby stands alone on the stage, and he begins to sing that classic song, I'm dreaming of a white Christmas, just like the ones I used to know, where the treetops glisten and children listen to hear sleigh bells in the snow. And, and in that moment, every soldier's eyes drop to the ground. And there they are leaning on their rifles, and there is a very solemn moment that they all share together. It's actually a profoundly sad moment. Now, we watched the movie with our boys last week, and I paused it. We paused the movie continually to explain what's going on, you know, to help them. I paused it at that point to explain why all these soldiers are sad. And honestly, I got a little choked up trying to explain it to my children. Because here these soldiers were. True story, by the way. This really happened. And they were about as far away from a white Christmas as humanly possible. They were a world away from all the things that they typically would have treasured that we typically treasure when it comes to Christmas time. So here these soldiers were in Europe that, they, that there, was, there would be no family for them. There would be no home-cooked meals, no presents, no tree, no Christmas carols, no telling stories around the fire, none of it. They were, they were going to spend Christmas dodging the falling bombs of the enemy. Uh, now, I don't suspect that any of us have had a Christmas quite like that one quite that extreme. Maybe you have. Um, but you know, it underscores, uh, for me, I think an important reality. There is a certain melancholy that comes with this time of year, that comes with this season. We don't like to talk about it. We don't like to face it up and admit it a lot of the time. But the truth is, um, grief, if you're grieving the loss of a loved one, it's probably hardest at Christmas time. It just is. If you have a, a sense of loneliness, that loneliness is probably most extreme at Christmas time. If you, uh, if you have stress and conflict and dysfunction within your family, guess what? Christmas usually brings out the worst of us in that regard. The dysfunction is usually most palpable at Christmas. Um, even Christmas at its best, even when, even when it's about as good as it can be, where there's peace and warmth and music and food and family and giving and all those things, even at its best, you know what's true? We can't make the moment last. I had this conversation with someone a couple of weeks ago. We love Christmas. I wish, it, I wish we could make it last, but it just seems to go by so quickly. And then guess what? January, okay? Back to the real world where it's harsh and cold and it gets dark at 4.30, okay? That's the reality of the world we live in. You can't hold on to Christmas even at its best. Now, I'm not down on Christmas. It's my favorite time of year. By far, it's my favorite time of year. But we have to just acknowledge this, that it, that it can take on a melancholy form, and even when it's at its best and when it's at its sweetest, Christmas cannot fulfill the deepest longings of our hearts. It just can't. It's not meant to. Christmas can never really fully live up to what the songs make it out to be. We wish it would. We want it to, 
but it's just not meant to. We can't hold on to it. Now, here's the truth. We're not just talking about Christmas. Anything that is in this world, of this world, anything that's temporary is something that ultimately we cannot pin our hopes to. It can't fulfill the deepest longings of the human heart. We can have all the very best that this world has to offer, and we can praise God for those good gifts. But in the end, those things are not meant to give us our sense of identity and to be our foundation for life. We can't make those things last. We can't hold on to them forever. And that's why it's so vital for us, whether it's Christmas time or any other time of year, it's so vital that we refuse to pin our hopes on anything of this world, good as those things may be. And instead, we pin our hopes on God because only God is truly eternal. Only God can truly transcend all the temporary things of life that one day will be gone. And so here's the amazing thing. As we look at Luke chapter 2 today, what God does, when God wants to bring light into the world, he doesn't simply sprinkle blessings on us here and there to improve our circumstances. For some of us, that might be really what all we want from God, is that he would just improve my life a little here and there, make tomorrow a little better than today, and today a little better than yesterday. That's not what he does. He doesn't just wish us these things that we desire, hope and comfort and peace and joy. He doesn't just say, I hope those things for you too. Those are, those are, those are things I'd love for you to experience. No, here's what God does at Christmas. Here's what God does in Luke chapter 2. He ushers those things into the world, unobligated. God, by, by his own free choice and decision, God says, I'm going to bring light into the darkness in the person of my son, Jesus Christ. We weren't looking for him. We talked about that last week. Most of us weren't even asking for it. But God, in his grace, brought these things forth. He pierced through the darkness of all our sin with the grace of his son, Jesus. And we see it on display. And I just love the fact that for us, what we see in the Christmas story, Luke chapter 2, should not affect just how we view Christmas. This is all of life. This is all of eternity is now different. Everything's different because of what's been done right here. So walk with me through the story again. We're not going to look at every single detail here. We don't have time. We're going to start in verse 6, in fact, where the action really gets started. Joseph and Mary, of course, have come to Bethlehem for the sake of the census. And it says while they were there, verse 6, the days were completed for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Y'all, Luke, Luke right here gives us all the detail we need, but he doesn't tell us everything. And, and many of us know this firsthand, the absolute agony of childbirth. Luke doesn't go into the details on that. But we just, can we just imagine for a moment a, a reality very far removed from our own? That what Luke does not tell us is that, you know, the days were, were completed for Mary to give birth. The doctor came in and administered the epidural. <laughs> and the nurses surrounded her. No, 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 no. No such thing. There, there's, no, there's, no, there's no doctor. There's no hospital. There's no sanitation. There's no, there's no uh, you know, nurses there to, to uh, de, you know, determine Jesus' Apgar score when he's born. A little birth humor for y'all, inside birth humor. There's no, Jesus would have been a 10 on the Apgar score, by the way, if you know what I'm talking about. He's, he's perfect. Um, it's easy for us to take for granted the agony and the pain and the darkness and the loneliness of this moment, what's going on right here. And if that's not bad enough, if the reality isn't bad enough, 
G, G, Mary takes Jesus, wraps him up in cloths, and lays him in a manger. Y'all, that's a feeding trough. You talk about mommy guilt. Mary, all, this, the only place she can lay her son now is in a feeding trough. This wonderful son, the, the son of the Most High, that's what's been promised to her. You, you have to wonder if Mary's thinking, what's going on here? All she has to do, the only, thing, the only resources they have in the midst of all this is to put him in a feeding trough. So, so Jesus comes into the world about as humbly as he can. Now, y'all, I, you know, again, we're so familiar with these stories that they may not jump off the page to us. But here's the truth. For religious people, it's a monstrous idea to think that God would condescend like this. God does not humiliate himself like this. God is high and exalted and lofty and glorious. He would never stoop down. He has no reason to. We're the ones who should be humble, not him. And yet, look, that's how the story goes. God does what for us as religious people, God should never do. God has no reason, no business doing. He stoops. He condescends. He, in some sense, humiliates himself. And y'all, that's how the story goes because that's how God intended it to go. Here's what we need to understand, and you probably have a sense of this. This isn't plan Z on down the line for God. All his other plans faltered and fell short, and so he finally just, you know, okay, well, I just, I got to get him into the world somehow, so here we go. This is how God, by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, this is how he chose, how he scripted to bring Jesus into the world. This is how he meant to do it. This was the plan. Jesus comes about as humbly as, as, as humanly possible. He comes into the world in a way that, honestly, for us at least, in our, in our you know, modern middle-class culture, we would be ashamed to bring our child into the world this way. And yet, this is how God intended it from the beginning. And you know, he's not done yet making his point. God wants to make his point about as clear as he can right here. He brings Jesus into the world humbly, but there's still the birth announcement. You know, you, when, you, when you have a baby, you've got to announce to everybody that the baby's here, right? God's going to do the same thing. But this is before Facebook, okay? This is back in the time where you had to do it like in person, face to face. And so God, in person, in a sense, comes and makes the birth announcement, and you see how he does it. Verse 8, in the same region nearby, there were some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly frightened. Y'all, these uh, very, very likely, these shepherds were poor, illiterate dirty men. Uh, Some of the the ancient Jewish writings outside of the Bible indicate that shepherds were considered outcasts, that they were considered untrustworthy men, that people viewed them with skepticism, that they they were considered very low down on the totem pole. Whatever they were, again, Luke doesn't give us all those details, whatever they were, we can be assured of this. These were lowly guys doing lowly work. They're keeping watch by night, this isn't even the daytime shift these guys are on right now. Okay? While the rest of the world is asleep, these men are hard at work watching over their flocks. And then in breaks an angel of the Lord. And as, as suddenly as it came upon Mary, we looked at it from Luke 1 last week, just as suddenly, maybe even more surprisingly, this comes upon these men and the glory of the Lord all of a sudden is, is shining around them. Now, here's the question. Wouldn't it make so much more sense... For God to announce the birth of his son elsewhere, differently, just thinking logically, wouldn't it have made more sense 
for God to do this right here, to bring his angel and shine his glory, wouldn't it have made more sense to do that in the temple with the priests? Or among the scribes and the scholars? Or in the palace to a king? Wouldn't that have made more sense? To us it would have. That's how probably we would have done it. If, if God's goal was to promote the, birth, the long-awaited birth of his son, why waste time with these guys, these shepherds, at night in the field? Y'all, there, there's a massive point God's making right here. We cannot afford to miss this. This is so important. The whole plan of God's salvation, the whole plan, brought about through the person of Jesus, it's a plan to take weak, sinful, broken, shameful, unworthy people and redeem them by grace. That's what the plan is. Why would God bring this proclamation to these shepherds first? It's an expression of how far his grace is going to reach, of just how far down, in a sense, God is going to reach his hand of grace to grab people who are in darkness and lostness and need. The, the Apostle Paul reflects on this in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. In 1 Corinthians 1, listen, the church of Corinth, they were obsessed with significance. They wanted to be somebody. They wanted to be seen in high regard. And that was important to them. And Paul reminds them right off the bat in, in his first letter to them, he says, this is not how God works. Listen to what Paul says. We're going to put it up for you here. 1 Corinthians 1, 26. Paul says, for consider your calling, brethren. He says, think about your salvation. That there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. What he's saying is, when you were saved, there were very few of you who were impressive in the eyes of the world. Wise, mighty, and noble. Smart, strong, and rich. No, that's not who you were. But... God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised, God has chosen the things that are not, so that he may nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before God. But by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, not your doing, his doing, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. What's Paul saying? God does not save a person based on any merit that we bring to the table. Nothing. If you, are, if you are particularly smart, wise, strong, rich, good for you. That's great. But it gets you nowhere in the eyes of God. He does not credit those things to your account as if that's going to build up uh, your credit for heaven. There is no salvation in you and in me, no matter how much merit we think we have to offer. In fact, God actually undercuts those things we see here in the scripture. It's not just that God views those things as null and void. He's actually against those things when we use those things to our own credit. When we try to build up our sense of identity based on some temporary measure of significance, intellect, strength, wealth, whatever it may be, God says, I came to undercut those things. Anybody who might take pride in themselves, God says, I'm going to bring a salvation that puts that pride to shame that lowers that pride 
and, and, and sticks it into the dust where it belongs. God says, I'm not going to honor human pride. I'm going to come in a way that showcases humility and salvation will come to us through those means. How did Jesus come into the world? In a wise way? Is that, is that how we would have done it? If we would have thought that story through and figured it out? No. From our perspective, quite foolish. Did Jesus come into the world in a mighty way? No. An unknown couple, uh, no room for them in the inn. He's laid down in a feeding trough. Not very mighty. Did he come in a noble way? Was he born in a palace? Was there wealth associated with his birth? No. There was nothing about the way God brought Jesus into the world that we would esteem him. And that's exactly how God intended it. He's, he's trying to make a point here that when we try to bring human greatness into the equation, God says, I'll undercut that because the only thing that matters in the end is God's greatness and we will boast only in him. God says, I'll bring my salvation in such a way that if you're convinced that you're somebody, you will in the end be put to shame because you cannot save yourself. Now, that's not bad news. That's good news because here's the truth. Salvation doesn't come to people who say, by my goodness and by my intellect, and by my wealth, I'll make myself acceptable to God. Salvation only comes to those who say, I know I'm unworthy. I know I'm a sinner. And so I put all my weight on Jesus. All my weight. I put all my hope. I pin everything on a Savior who came to do for me what I could not do for myself. Now, when we recognize that that's what the Christian message is, that's what salvation is, when we see it, then it makes perfect sense that God would bring the birth announcement to these shepherds, doesn't it? It's not strange at all that God, in his own chosen humility, he has no reason to be humble, that God would now bring this gracious message, this wonderful good news, to people that the world sees as nothing. This is how far my grace will reach. Everybody's included. Isn't that awesome? Salvation comes when we say, I'm nothing, but Jesus is everything, and he's come for me. That's what the angels tell them. Look at verse 10. The shepherds are afraid, but the angel says to them, don't be afraid. For behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For today in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men with whom God is pleased. Y'all, one, one of the consistent threads throughout the Bible, when an angel appears, uh, almost always the angel says what? Do not be afraid. Isn't that the truth? Why would an angel need to say that? Two reasons. One, it's an angel, okay? Like, it's a supernatural appearance. If you and I encountered an angel, we would be afraid, okay? Maybe in, in some sense, like if we, if we saw a ghost, you know, we'd be afraid, right? We're seeing something that is beyond the, the boundaries of the natural world. We're scared, right? But that's, see, that's not all. That's not all. Um, these shepherds aren't scared because maybe they think they're seeing a ghost or some supernatural being merely, okay? Um, when an angel of the Lord shows up, the holiness of the Lord shows up. It says the glory of the Lord shone around them. 
They are, these shepherds are in a moment with no warning, they are in the presence of God's holiness and God's glory. And the truth is that when we, ex- when we are um, exposed to God's glory in this way, we recognize ourselves for who we really are. We are sinners. We have no business being in the presence of this kind of holiness and glory. Uh, if you remember a great story from Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah is in the temple and the glory and presence of the Lord all of a sudden is there among him. And the angels are there singing and praising God. And, and Isaiah's response, a prophet, a very important man, his response is not, how wonderful. Isaiah's response is, woe is me. I'm ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips. Isaiah knew that in the presence of God's holiness and glory, he was a sinner. He had no business being in God's presence. My sense, God, again, Luke doesn't tell us this, but I just I think this is true that there may be, at least for, for the shepherds, a sense in which the angel shows up to judge us because we deserve judgment. We're sinners. He's holy, right? And therefore the angel says, oh, no, 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 no. Don't be afraid. That's not why I've come. Look at this. I bring you good news. This is not a message of judgment. This is a message of salvation. That literally good news means gospel. It's the word gospel. I bring you gospel of great joy which will be for all the people. For today there's been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Not a message of judgment, which we would have deserved, but a message of salvation, which we have not deserved. This is the gospel. And I want you guys to notice, at least in the New American Standard that we use, the word for, F-O-R, shows up multiple times, very strategically, very intentionally. The angel says, I'm bringing you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. This is not news that God simply announces um, vicariously that if we're inclined enough to go looking for it, maybe we'll show ourselves worthy and discover it. No, I'm bringing you good news for the people, for us. There's intentionality on God's part. He's not simply sprinkling it abroad. He's bringing it for you. And guess what? There's been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. You see that? Not just to you, not just near you, for you. This is grace. That we have a God who would love us enough in spite of our unworthiness that he would bring his son for us. And y'all, this right here, I don't care how many times you've heard this story, I would encourage you right now to take a deep breath and just bask in the light of this, of how wonderful God is to us, that in spite of me, he would come for me. Listen, if that doesn't stir you, if that doesn't just knock your knees out from under you, uh, we should take a cue from the angels in that case this morning. You notice the angels, uh, all throughout the New Testament, we see angels, the angels never get tired of God's grace. They never get over it. You know, angels, are, of course, are, are, they spend eternity and have spent for, you know, for, they've been a long time in the presence of God, okay? They ought to be used to it by now, you'd think. And yet the Bible talks about angels that they long to look into the things that God has done for us. They never get over it. It's amazing to them, even if I might take it for granted. Look at what the angels do, verse 13. A, an entire heavenly host shows up along with the angel. An angel choir comes along 
And they say in verse 13, glory to God in the highest. And on earth, peace among men with whom God is pleased. The angels do two things here. They point upward first to God's glory. They establish God as the, as the singular focus of all our, our hope and praise and worship. But then they point downward to us. And they say, now on earth, peace among people with whom God sets his favor. Uh, what kind of peace are they talking about right there? Uh, this is not general everybody gets along kind of peace, although that's not a bad thing. Um, this is the peace that salvation brings to us. In Romans chapter 5, the Apostle Paul says that we who have been justified by faith, we now have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Because of God's bringing into the world of Jesus Christ, his son, because he brought him for us, we now have peace with God. Peace with one another, that's, that's, that's an ongoing process, am I right? But peace with God is once and for all finally done. All, all the enmity that our sin produced, this great gulf between God and, and humanity, God has bridged the gap and he's brought us peace with himself through Jesus. He is pleased with us. Again, not because of our merit, because he has set his favor, his grace upon us in Christ. Um, how would you respond to this if you were one of these shepherds? Um, I think we'd probably respond a lot like they actually did. Do you see how the story ends? This proclamation's been made, verse 15. When the angels had gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds began saying to one another, what do y'all want to eat for dinner? No. Let's go straight to Bethlehem then and see this thing that's happened, which the Lord has made known to us. So they came in a hurry. They left their sheep, apparently. They came in a hurry and they found their way to Mary and Joseph and the baby as he lay in the manger. And when they had seen this, they made known the statement which had been told them about this child. And all who heard it wondered at the things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary treasured all these things, pondering them in her heart. The shepherds went back glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen exactly as had been told them. Um, so nothing about the conclusion is surprising. It's pretty much to script, isn't it? I mean, the shepherds run to Bethlehem with great urgency. They repeat what they were told. Everyone's wondering at these words. Everyone's astonished. Mary is pondering and treasuring these things in her heart. They all glorify God. It's exactly how it ought to go, right? Same thing any of us would have done. Not so fast. Hey, hey, there's, there's an interesting thing about the Christmas story. It's, again, it's a story you know. It's not actually something that Luke tells us. In Matthew, you don't turn to Matthew chapter 2, but in Matthew 2, Matthew gives us an insight into the Christmas story, very famous story about the Magi, the wise men. And you remember the story about the wise men, that they uh, saw the star that God had established for them to see. Just such, a, such, such richness to that story, dating back to the Old Testament, fulfillment of prophecy. These men see the star, they travel from afar, and they, they, they come to Jerusalem, and they ask the question, where is he who's been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star, and we have come that we might worship him. And you know, in Jerusalem, everybody was troubled by this. These men from another country, from another religious system, they come and they show up and they say, we want to worship this one who's been born king of the Jews. Everybody's troubled, Matthew tells us, especially Herod. King Herod views the Messiah as a threat. He's troubled, and so he inquires, he gets all the scribes and Pharisees together, and he says, now tell me where the Messiah is supposed to be born. 
And they quote to him from Micah. They know the answer. It's from the Old Testament. That the Messiah will be born in Bethlehem. Okay? And yet, here's, you know what's interesting? As far as we know, um, none of those guys actually went to Bethlehem to check it out. The Magi, of course, went and gave gifts and worshipped. But as far as we know, none of the scribes or the Pharisees, no one in Jerusalem, went to go see the Messiah for themselves, to worship him as the Magi had come to do. And it's, to me, it's interesting that for all their wisdom and learning and high position, for all their religious resume building, these guys missed it entirely, even though they knew it was coming, even though the Magi came with this troubling message. Bethlehem was six miles away from Jerusalem. Jesus was right under their nose. And yet, apparently, by their own choice, they just let it go. Whatever, the, whatever those people had pinned their hopes on, it was not a baby in Bethlehem. They couldn't bother to go see for themselves. The point here is this. You and I might look at the shepherd's response and say, well, of course, that's what I'd do. Maybe so. But we shouldn't take that for granted. That the shepherds responded with urgency. The shepherds responded with, with full-on intention to go and lock eyes on this child and worship him. But not everybody responded that way. And it may be that we uh, cushion ourselves with religious things, with religious feelings, with sentiments and practices and church attendance and whatever else, but at no point is the urgent desire of our heart to come to Jesus. And y'all, ultimately that makes all the difference. Those, those men, and again, I'm, I'm reading between the lines, I know, but those men what we know from their relationship with Jesus in his ministry, those scribes and those Pharisees, they put all their hopes upon themselves in their own law reliance. They were going to do it by their own efforts. And the message of the gospel is this, that you can't. And so with urgency, we're going to go one direction or the other. We're going to build up a life that depends on our own uh, merits. And we're going to seek for temporary things, or we're going to lock eyes and heart on Jesus Christ and pin all our hopes on him. Let's not take that choice for granted this Christmas. Whose response is more like ours? The scribes or the shepherds? Y'all, you know, we mentioned this at the beginning, the sweetness of Christmas, but also the bitter. Um, most of us are going to fall into one of two categories, maybe some mixture of the two, but let, let me just, let's just close with this. Some of us this Christmas, for some of us, is going to be very sweet. It's going to be very sweet. All the things we want it to be, for the most part, we're going to experience it that way. Um, it's going to be right at our fingertips. Um, but be reminded of this, and I'm not trying to say it as a downer, it's just the truth. We're not going to be able to hold on to it. Even at its best, we can't hold on to it because we're not meant to. All the sweet and wonderful things about Christmas, all the sweet and wonderful things about life, are at their very best, they're just shadows of a greater reality. They're meant to point us to something greater, to something even better. God gives us many wonderful good gifts. Every good and perfect gift comes from above. It's from Him. And yet only one thing comes to us as the ultimate gift, the eternal gift, and that is the gift of His Son. And so if Christmas is very sweet for you, praise God for that. But do not pin your hopes there. It will, it will fly away and it will be January before you know it. And in the end, if we pin our hopes on anything, even good things that God gives to us, we will never find what we find in Christ in the coming of God's Son, 
We have to pin our hopes on him. The charms of this world will distract us and we'll potentially miss the Savior. Now, for some of us, of course, the, the Christmas season will have some bitterness to it. We talked about this, that, that there is, for us, maybe grief or conflict or family dysfunction. There's anxiety, there's fear, there's, uh, there's financial strain, there's loneliness, you fill in the blank. That this is not as nice and wonderful and sweet a season as the songs make it out to be or as you wish it would. Those realities are real, okay? That, I mean, that, that stuff is real. I don't pret- we don't pretend that stuff away. It's not all in your head. Okay, it's real, but it doesn't get the last word. If, there is a, if there's a bitterness in you, and I don't say bitterness as if it's a sin. I simply say if there's, a, if there's a melancholy, if there's a struggle this season for you, that struggle, as real as it may be, it doesn't get the last word. Because what we see at Christmas, God did not enter the world to sprinkle upon you better circumstances. If that were the case, then frankly, God is not always accountable. Because not all our circumstances work out in our favor. If that were his goal, then, then I'm not sure he's, he's doing so great at that, okay? I don't say that to be sacrilegious. That's not his goal, to simply improve our lives incrementally, one day at a time. No, God came into the world to set his grace upon us, to make us at peace with himself, to give us a gift that no temporary measure can provide, that no merit within me can produce. Only God can give us this grace. And for you, if this is a, an especially difficult season, then I encourage you in this, that you can rest. You can rest with all your weight upon the security of a God who loves you enough to send his son for you. To say there is good news of great joy for you, and his name is Christ the Lord. There is no circumstance so bad that God cannot support us with the foundation of of his joy to carry us through. That joy comes from Jesus Christ, who transcends all circumstance. Y'all, when, when the shepherds heard this good news, they, they responded with urgency, with joy, with a fixation. All of their affections in that moment were pointed toward Bethlehem. When we hear this good news, may we do the same. Let's pray. Father, we have, uh, we have joy this morning, and we thank you, Lord, that joy is not the same as happiness. It's not just a temporary, fleeting reality. It's not dependent on our circumstances. And for those of us who lack that kind of impervious joy right now, Lord, would you do the very best thing you can do, which is by your Spirit, bring to us the light of Jesus Christ. Make known to us the glory of his grace and plant this joy, this this new life within us. Um, We cannot find it elsewhere. We cannot produce it from within, Lord. It's got to come from you and it's got to be given to us. Lord, I pray that we don't Look to the Christmas season to meet our deepest longings and needs. I pray, Lord, that we would have a, a, a more sober mind than that, that we would enjoy your gifts, but that, Lord, with urgency, with all affection and gratitude, that we would, we would fix our eyes on Jesus, 
And that, Lord, that, that the Christmas season would be made rich and joyful and wonderful, even if everything around us should fall apart. Because we have in Christ um, the wisdom and salvation and glory of the eternal God who loved us enough to come for us. Father, where, where we have... Um, I, I know this. I, I just have to know this. Uh, that that there is, there, there's melancholy among us right now. Grief, dysfunction, loneliness, fear, anxiety. Lord, would you encourage us in this way? Certainly we, we pray, uh, most of all, for your, your son Jesus to, 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 to set us upon a, a foundation of joy. But Lord, would you give us a mind as a church to come around one another, to be encouragers, to be gospel proclaimers, to to speak to one another the wonderful truths of Jesus, to strengthen each other, to bear one another's burdens, to help each other in, in terms of, of, of having the courage to walk through a difficult season, that we would rather than try to fake our way through, through a, a happy time, Lord, that we would own our struggle and, and deal with it together because we are the family of God. And I pray, Lord, that, that for those of us who need courage to admit it, that you'd grant that courage. And for the others of us, Lord, who need the um, sensitivity to see it, that you would grant that to us. And that we would open our arms to one another. That no one might go through Christmas lonely. That no one might go through grieving without encouragement that no one might feel stress and dysfunction and family conflict without friendships to, uh, to strengthen and, uh, and, and, and to walk through those valleys with. Lord, would, would we be the church in that regard this season? Um, convict us where we need to grow in that, that we might be a blessing to one another, even as we receive all good things from you. And I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.